So today is the second Sunday of our series on the creed, the creed. Uh, now, the, a creed is something that has been, you know, sort of, sort of passed by. The, the church used to really stand firm on creeds and recite creeds and memorize creeds. Uh, there are multiple creeds of the historic Christian faith uh, that have been very powerful in establishing Christian doctrine over the, over the centuries, really. Uh, but that has since kind of waned. So we're, we're getting back to the, the old school a little bit during this month. And we are going to be studying and memorizing a creed, not one that was made up by human theologians, but one that is right there in Scripture, right there embedded in Philippians chapter 2. Now, a creed is a core set of beliefs that guide our actions. Everybody has a creed. You may or may not know it, but everybody has a core set of beliefs that drive everything you do. It's election season, if you haven't heard. And in election season, people are supposed to be sharing their ideas, sharing their political creeds, the, the set of beliefs and values that drive their politics. Uh, but unfortunately, in the waning days of any election, it gets very angry. And so instead of uh, thoughtfully addressing creeds, we are just accusing each other and mad, right, at this and that. It, the same is true often in religious circles as well, that instead of thoughtfully having a dialogue about what we believe and why we believe it, we are kind of fighting and accusing each other. If we don't agree on some things, well, you don't believe the Bible or you're not even a Christian or you're a heretic, when we're just having discussions about what we believe and why we'll believe it. This is why it's so important for us to have a thoughtful and calm uh, study about the core beliefs of the Christian faith. We can be a learning community that studies God's word, takes God's word seriously, uh, and gets together in small groups and, and really wrestles through these truths that make up the core beliefs and values of what it means to be a Christian. So we're going to go through this passage. It's a series of passages found in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. And uh, we want to get these words in our hearts, in our souls, emblazoned on our minds so that this creed becomes our creed. This creed becomes the creed of our lives, becomes the creed of the church. So in respect for this first creed of the first church, let's all stand. And we are going to read this together. Some of you are a little late getting up. You know, I didn't come to Rancho to stand up and sit down a thousand times. Okay, that's all right. Just for this month. Let's read this together. Though he was by very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. As we talked about last week, this is an upside-down creed. Uh, the power paradigm of this world has a top-down sort of a paradigm where the most powerful at the top and the most powerful kind of exploit and use people down the line. That's the normal human nature power paradigm that was on full display 2,000 years ago when this creed was authored under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus came to tear down the power paradigm. He came to tear it down and to establish a whole new paradigm of humility. So this creed is a humility paradigm. It's not top down, but bottom up. And we graphed this out last week, that at the very bottom, the chief servant is in fact the one who is equal with God. Imagine that. Jesus, the one equal with God, we'll study that today. He put himself at the bottom 
to serve those above him. He became a servant. He became a human. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was the crucified one. And so in the power paradigm of the Roman Empire, the crucified was the most despised, erased from human history, and yet the one who was equal with God became the crucified one. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. The kingdom of heaven is an upside-down paradigm. It's about seeking to be the last, seeking to be the servant of all. That's the, the nature of Christ, and that's the one we serve. Now, the creed begins with a, a stunning description of Jesus. It begins with a stunning description of Jesus. Now, sometimes descriptions uh, can be trusted. Sometimes descriptions are, you know, are a little shaky. I brought a couple of examples. Skinny Pop. Any Skinny Pop fans in here? All right, I'm going to break your heart. <laughs> Ready? Skinny Pop. This is flying off the shelves. In fact, I wanted to bring a small bag today of Skinny Pop. You know the problem is? I couldn't find it anywhere in town. Costco sold out. Costco's building a whole new wing of Costco specifically for Skinny Pop. <laughs> Why are they selling so much Skinny Pop? Because it says what? Skinny. It's popcorn. <laughs> it is normal popcorn. It just says skinny on it. And so, you know, church growth strategy, we're calling this skinny church. And people will flock to skinny church. It's just popcorn. Now, a serving and a half, which is about that much, a serving and a half of skinny pop has the same calories as a candy bar. I literally, last service, had somebody argue with me, stood up and said, that can't be true, it says skinny. She didn't stand up, but we did have a debate in church, traditional service. <laughs> I love that crew. It's right here, 150 calories per tiny little serving. Candy bars, 225. I'm sorry. But you eat one little bag of Skinny Pop. Is that enough? Do you, can, can you just eat one little bag of Skinny Pop? No, you got to eat four. Two candy bars. All right. Just because it says something doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's, it's absolutely true, Right? So the description of Jesus in Philippians 2.6, we have to discern, is this absolutely true of Jesus? Is what's in this creed something foundational and trustworthy? And the answer, of course, is yes. Here's what it says about Jesus, an utterly stunning statement. Though he was by very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And so this creed begins with a description of Jesus. It's a description of Jesus that is stunning, but it's a description of Jesus that is absolutely true. Jesus is the very nature of God. He is equal with God. This is the one we follow. This is Jesus. And this is the, the, the key mystery of the church. It's the key mystery of theology. Um, this idea that, that there is Father, Son, and Spirit. That God is one, yet three. And we see this in Scripture very clearly. That there is one God. There are not three gods. There is one God, yet God is in fact plural. God is multiple persons. Let's see, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It's the first time uh, in the first paragraphs of the scripture we see that God is referred to as plural. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This word for God is Elohim. It's the plural form of Eloah. And, and so as the author, the Hebrew author, is writing this in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses a plural word for God. Yet, it is very clear throughout Scripture that there is one God, one God who is plural. It is a great mystery of theology. 
I'm not going to try to help us understand it. It's, it's futile to try to understand God. I thought about bringing a worm up here, and I thought, okay, that's a little much on the props. But a, a worm, if I held a worm in my hand and dangled it in front of me, that worm would have some sense that I'm around. This worm would feel however they can feel, you know, that their body's being held. I don't think they have eyes, but there's some kind of sensing that there is somebody, you know, in contact with them. That worm cannot describe the majesty of Scott Treadway. Impossible. We are the worm. We, some, we sometimes, you know, understand God in various ways. We have his word. We have creation. We're wrestling together. We have a heart for eternity. So there's some sense that God is here. There's some knowledge of who God is, but we are the worm sensing and perceiving God. There is no way we could understand God. So there's no way we can understand this concept of the Trinity, one God in three persons, but we look at God's word and we see Elohim, the plural God, having a conversation between persons. Let us make man in our image. We see a parallel passage in John chapter one, verse one. In fact, it starts with the very same phrase, in the beginning. Now this is uh, about 1,500 years later, this is in Greek, but it's the same phrase. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. Well, who is this Word? This Word was God. This Word is not the Father. The Father is not the Word. And then there's the Spirit of God. There's Father, Son, and Spirit. The Word took on human flesh. The Word became the Son of God. And so we have in the scripture, we have a single God in three persons. It's called the Trinity. It's beyond any human capacity to understand. Yet it's clear in the scripture that there is God the Father. God the Father is the eternal origin of all. Then there is God the Word or the Word of the Father, the eternal preceding Word who became the Son, who took on human flesh. Then there's the Spirit of the Father and the Son. The Spirit of the Father and the Son binds the Father and Son and us together in perfect love and perfect unity. One God, Father, Son, and Spirit. John 1.14 says this about the Word. You can call the Word the second person of the Trinity. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word took on human flesh. The Word became the Son of God. The Word became who we now know as Jesus. As we say at Rancho all the time, Jesus is the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity. That's the one we follow. That's the one we serve. That's the one who we're called to be like Jesus, the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity. Can't explain it. I'm not going to try. Some people say, well, it's like an egg, you know, shell, white, and yolk. It's okay. You can compare God to an egg all you want to, right? Uh, I'm not going to do that. We are worms trying to perceive the eternal majestic God. And all we can do is kind of humble ourselves before him and say whatever little bits of knowledge we have about God, that he is one God, yet he is plural, Father, Son, Spirit, we're going to believe it. And there there is a vast theology around the Trinity that our God is one, yet, yet he is relationship. He is relationship within himself. That means so much to who he is. He's a relational God. So when he makes us in his image, he's inviting us to be in relationship with the God who is already in relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a powerful theology. It's it's an essential theology. Philippians 2.6, Jesus is by very nature God. That's who he is, by very nature God. And and, and this second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, we see in the Creed, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, that the second person of the Trinity takes different forms. The word form is morph. 
Uh, and that's uh, the Greek word that you might be familiar with. We use the word morph today to talk about the, these changing forms. The creed of Philippians 2 is Jesus being equal with God by very nature of God, taking the form of a servant, the form of a man, taking the form of death, even death on a cross. It is, it is God Almighty releasing the privileges of deity so that he might lower himself to serve all of mankind. That's who Jesus is. He is by very nature God. And so we're going to talk, talk through what it is to be the form of God today. And then next week, we'll talk about the form of a man as he humbled himself, giving himself even the death. And then we'll talk about the form of the exalted Lord himself. There should be two more clicks of the slide right there. Form of God, form of man, and form of the exalted Lord. That is, that is the, the outline of this creed in Philippians chapter 2. And so the question today is, what is the form of God in your mind? What is the form of God in your mind? When you think of God, who do you think him to be? Because that is the most important question that we can ask ourselves. That's the most important answer we can come up with is who is God? What is the form of God to us? When we think of God, what do we think? And there are some people who say, well, you know what? I don't believe in God at all. God doesn't exist. If God doesn't exist, there are implications to that. If God doesn't exist, then why are we here? There's no answer to the reason why we are here. Maybe we just have this life as a random accident. We are a random accident. There is no purpose. I'm going to live for the now. There are consequences to what we believe about God. Maybe we think God doesn't care. This could be an agnostic sort of a, of a conclusion that there might be a God, there might not be, but if there is, um, we don't know him. We can't know him. And, and perhaps he's not involved with us. Perhaps he doesn't care. There's consequences to that. There is no eternal definition of love if God doesn't care. And so again, we're in this by ourselves. Or maybe some people think, well, God is here. God cares, but he is mad. He's mad at us because we're not perfect. He's mad at the world because the world is, is imperfect. God is angry. And if, if we believe God is angry, then we have a fear-based a sort of ominous presence that is brooding and watching and he's waiting for us to, to make a mistake and to punish us if we do. But he's dangling the carrots of reward if we comply, if we fall in line, right? That's a God who is angry. And we have to turn his anger into blessing by what we give him, by what we do for him. Uh, this involves a conditional love. We're raised in conditional love and that, in, that, that impacts our marriages. It impacts how we raise our kids. It impacts who we are. If we believe God is angry, I'm telling you, we are going to spill out anger in our own lives. What if we believe God is abusive? There are people who absolutely believe God is abusive because they have been abused, sometimes sadly, even in the name of God. And these, this is making headlines all over the place. All over the world, this is making headlines. People abused in the church by the name of God. It has got to stop. It has to stop. Everywhere there is abuse, particularly, and using the name of God, how horrific is that, Right? So there are people who feel as though they have been abused by God and his people. This is terrible. But what if we can turn that around? What if, we, what if we view God and the form of God in a different way? That he does exist. He does care. He's not angry. He's not abusive. But in fact, Jesus is kind and selfless. What if we believe that God is kind and selfless? That changes everything. If we believe God is kind and selfless, it changes everything. That's why believing in Jesus is so important because we see kindness in Jesus. We see selflessness in Jesus. And in Jesus is the fullness of God, the full nature of God, uh, e equal with God. 
We see God, Jesus says. We see Jesus, we see the Father. Philippians 2.6. Though he was by very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus had every privilege of divinity. The Lord God Almighty, sovereignty, power, omniscience, the creator. He had every privilege of deity. And yet in his kindness and in his selflessness, he gave up that privilege to serve us, to serve the worm. What a remarkable truth. That's right there in the first sentence of the creed. Equal with God by very nature God. But he didn't consider that something to be grasped. He emptied himself. He gave of himself. The fullness of God took the form of a servant, took the form of a selfless and kind man. That's who our God is. Our God is selfless and kind. And that is entirely opposite of everyone who had privilege at the time 2,000 years ago. All the great rulers and heroes and gods of the time of the writing of this 2,000 years ago were famous for exploiting their power and using people for their own gain. The emperors of the time, Caligula and Nero, used their power to exploit and cause harm for their own personal gain. The great conqueror, Alexander the Great, just taking territory after territory for his own personal gain and the, and the gain of the empire. The gods, Apollo and Zeus, all used their position to, to take advantage of people for their own glory, for their own gain. And then here comes Jesus, turning that entire political and religious paradigm upside down, and Jesus proves that God is selfless and kind. Most people in the world do not believe God is selfless and kind. They believe God is angry and full of wrath and out to get us if we blow it, out to wreck our lives if we disobey him, and he'll only reward us. This carrot will only come if we fall in line, comply, and obey. Then he might reward us condescendingly. We don't see that in Jesus. We see a God who is selfless and kind. In other words, God does not cling to privilege, but he gives up privilege for the benefit of others. Isn't that what Jesus did? He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The word means to seize or to take. He didn't take privilege. He didn't seize privilege. He emptied himself of that privilege. If I could summarize it even further, I'd say this, that God doesn't take, God gives. God doesn't take, God gives. And that concept is so foreign to the paradigm of power. I mean, entirely foreign to the paradigm of power. Uh, 2,000 years ago, and sadly, even today in many parts of the world, if I have privilege, of course I'm gonna use my privilege to exploit other people. Of course I'm gonna use my privilege to take from other people for my own benefit. That's the power paradigm. And that power paradigm is in every one of our hearts in some respects. Just think through your own life and your own family. Do you use power at all to, to manipulate, to get people to do what you want? Do you use your, your power or your voice or, or, or skills to manipulate in order to, to get your way? I mean, there's, there's this power paradigm buried in every one of us. This concept is foreign to the religious mind. The religious mind says God needs something from us. He needs our worship. He needs our obedience. He needs our compliance, right? What does Jesus do? He says, I don't need that. I'm going to actually give up my privilege for your benefit. This concept of humility is totally foreign to human nature. Human nature wants to take. Human nature wants to get our way in an argument. Human nature wants to increase our lifestyle. Human nature wants more benefits, right? And, and, and that's for all of us, right? Every one of us. We struggle with this power paradigm. We struggle living for our own benefit because that is human nature. But then we look at Jesus. And we see Jesus, the very nature of God, equal with God, giving up the privileges of deity 
to benefit us. So considering the fact that Jesus opened his hand to release the privileges he rightfully owned for the benefit of others, we have to ask ourselves a question. I'm gonna ask a very difficult question. I'm gonna ask a question I asked not too long ago and at least one family left the church over it, so I'm a little bit apprehensive. It's a big time question. Has to be asked. What privilege do you have in your hand? What privilege do you have in your hand? We know Jesus was equal with God, by very nature God. He had the full privilege of deity in his hand and he gave it up for the benefit of the world. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what privilege is in our hand? Now I wanna be clear. Before some of you get mad, and most of you are asking, why would anybody get mad about this? Oh, just wait. Let me be clear. Having privilege or being privileged doesn't make us bad. Having privilege or being privileged doesn't make us a perpetrator. Having privilege or being privileged doesn't make us automatically an abuser or mistreater of others. In fact, Philippians 2.6 talks about Jesus having the most privilege of all, by very nature God. So if Jesus had the privilege of divinity, certainly having privilege doesn't make us bad, right? And let me be clear, I am a person of privilege. I was born into privilege. I was born as a citizen of the United States of America. That's a privilege. I've been all over the world, and I am privileged to be a citizen of the United States of America. It's a privilege to be born into a middle-class family. My family didn't have a, a lot, but they had a middle-class income. I never had to worry about food. I never had to worry about clothes. I never had to worry about shelter. I am privileged. My family raised me in this incredible community. I mean, I'm born, bred, raised Temecula. I wasn't even called Temecula. I was here 20 years before this even became a city. But this is an incredible community. I am privileged to live in this community except for August 1st through September 15th. It's hot, it's just really hot here. But I'm privileged to be a part of this community. My family raised me uh, with the value of college education and they stretched and I stretched and, and we got to the finish line on college education, both my brother and I, that's a privilege. My parents encouraged me to be involved in church. We weren't this you know, uh, tight, buttoned up Christian family walking hand to hand in church every Sunday. That came way later, right? But my parents said, hey, you wanna go to church? That's great, knock yourself out, go to youth group, hey, no problem. There I found the love of Jesus Christ, the grace of Christ. I found a Rancho Community Church embracing this dysfunctional Treadway family, loving every single one of us into the kingdom of heaven, showing us the love of God. I found mentors, one of which mentored me for 22 years here at the church. That's a privilege. Here's where it gets a little tough. Is there any privilege because I'm white? There is. Even in the United States of America where we are working really hard on, on racial unity uh, and struggling to find that biblical um, vision of equality, I have to say there is some privilege in being white. Is there a privilege in being male? I can't come up with any other answer than to say, yes, there's some. Again, thankfully in America, we're working to bridge the gaps between men and women, whether it's pay or opportunity or whatever it is, we're working very hard to bridge the gaps but there is some privilege in that. It's okay to own that we have privilege. In fact, when we can own that we have privilege, it's actually a very humble place to be. It's a humble place to be. It's not saying, oh, I'm privileged, look at me. No, that's awful. Jesus didn't do that, he did the opposite. But there's a humility to admit, you know what? I was born into some blessings that I didn't earn. 
I am privileged and that's okay. Some of you might be saying, well, I'm not privileged at all. Well, I, did you eat yesterday? Did you drive here? Did somebody take you here? Do you have some friends? Do you have a healthy body? There, there's some, if, we, if we were to just take a moment of sobriety and to think, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my mind to some good things that are in my life, most of which we didn't earn. I have some privileges I didn't earn. Let's hold those with humility. There's also some privileges we earn. I mean, some of you are very successful in your career. Some of you own businesses. You're the boss. You've earned a good living. You're smart or lucky with your investments. Uh, You have a certain standing in the community. There's privilege we didn't earn, and there's privilege that we earn. And it's okay to acknowledge I have some privilege. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make you a perpetrator or an abuser. It's just healthy to own that. Philippians 2.6, Jesus owns his privilege by being the very nature of God. So here's the question. The question then is what do we do with our privilege? What do we do with our privilege? And I just think it's a good idea to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. What did he do with his privilege? Though he was in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't cling to his privilege. He didn't exploit people. He didn't use people for his own benefit. He let go of the privileges of deity for our benefit. Remember what we said earlier? God doesn't take, he gives. So let's just follow that. Don't take. Don't take. In your life, don't take. And you might be thinking, okay, what do you mean take? I don't steal anything. Well, just, just think through some stuff. This should go without saying, but it has to be said. Don't take another man's wife or husband. Write that down. Put that, put that on a note. Put that on your dashboard. More than half of the people in our country take another man's wife or husband. Don't take from your spouse the vow that you gave to him or her. Don't take another person's reputation through gossip or lying or online barbs that are cowardly. Don't take another person's reputation. Don't take someone's power through manipulation. Some of us are very good with manipulation. We can use words in a certain way, use our voice in a certain way, use threats or passive aggressiveness in a certain way. Don't take another person's control or dignity by your manipulation. Don't take someone's money unjustly through unfair business practices. Don't cheat, don't shave on your customers or clients. Don't cheat or shave here you know, and there on your employees. Just be very fair, right? That's how we can be like Jesus. That's how we can empty ourselves of the privilege that we own. Don't take. But beyond not taking from others, give. That's what Jesus did. That's what this creed is all about, how the privilege of God gave up that privilege to give to us. And so if we're gonna not only believe in Jesus, but follow Jesus, don't take give. And how can we give? Well, we can give opportunity to others. You have a lot of opportunity, no doubt. One of the privileges you have, I'm quite sure, is you have some opportunity. Where were you born? What are the resources that you have? You have opportunity. Maybe your parents valued education. I don't know, whatever that opportunity is, you have opportunity. Give that opportunity to others. Give the same opportunity you enjoy to others. Isn't that very Christ-like? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, enjoyed a relationship with God that is unbroken and unbreakable. Jesus gave that privilege away, even to the point of on the cross, shouting, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would enjoy the opportunity to have an unbroken and unbreakable relationship with God the Father. Jesus gave everything so that we would enjoy the same opportunity that he has. 
we can give opportunity to others. What does that look like in your life? We can give our time to others. Just volunteer. There's no need to, to have every single hour of your life dedicated to you and your family. That's good. You know, live a good life, have a good career, pour into your family. But every hour of our life doesn't have to be poured into our family and ourselves. Give a little bit of time for the benefit of others. For those of you who served at October Extravaganza, you serve on the farm, you serve in children's, you serve in youth, you volunteer in the community, you do something good with your time. Bravo, that is, that is Christ-like. You don't have to do that. You are privileged. You have the privilege of giving all your time to yourself and your family. But we have the choice to empty ourselves for the benefit of others. Just a little bit of time. Money, I'm just gonna spend 10 seconds on this. We have got wealth beyond belief from a global perspective. And yet the more money we earn, the more we spend on ourselves. And even then we still borrow more and more. And it's just this endless chasing of lifestyle at some point, just turning that around and say, I have the right and privilege to spend all my money on myself. I have that right and that privilege. But I can let that go and I can give a little bit of that money to people that are doing some good. How about mentoring? You have got skills and gifts and abilities that are uniquely yours. And the next generation needs that from you. Maybe you're in business. Maybe you've got a pretty solid family. Maybe you've gone through some struggles in life and you've overcome with those struggles. You've got a story and that story should not be locked up in your own experience. That story can, can result in mentoring to the next generation and pouring that good stuff into the next generation. Yes, you don't have to do that. You can hold to the privilege of keeping your story and your skills and your abilities to yourself. But what a great privilege it is and honor it is to say, I'm gonna mentor somebody else. I'm gonna come alongside that person. I've had the uh, privilege of um, mentoring a homeless man here in town for the uh, past couple of years, and I'm telling you, there's been nothing more difficult in my life. Uh, very complex stuff, mental illness and anger and all kinds of stuff. And I've had a lot of moments where I thought to myself, what in the H heck am I doing here? Am I, ha am I making any difference? Am I doing any good? I mean, we make a bunch of progress and then step back and I uh, just, Last week, he's in jail. And I'm thinking, what, what is going on here, you know? And I've had moments where I'm thinking, you know, do I just, do I cut bait here? You know, I've, I've got only so much time, and, and I can only pour into so many people, and, and should this thing keep going? And then I looked at Philippians 2, 6. Equal with God, very nature of God, gave up his privilege so that I can know the love and grace of God the Father, so that I can have an eternal relationship with God the Father. All of the privilege I have in relationship with God is because Jesus gave up his privilege for me and for you and for this world. So when we evaluate our own lives, where am I privileged? Let's also evaluate how can I let go of that privilege, not considering that privilege something to be grasped, but empty ourselves for the benefit of others. And, and maybe for you or your family, it's just one next step in that regard. Where can I give opportunity to another person? Answer that question. Where can I give a little bit of my time? Where can I give a little bit of my resources? Where can I give a little bit of mentoring to the next generation so that I can follow in the footsteps of Jesus? As we close in prayer, I'm gonna, I'm gonna close in first a prayer of faith. For some of you today, this is the first time you truly understood what Jesus is all about. Jesus gave up everything, including dying on the cross, 
to, to break every barrier between us and God. And he unites us with God by love, by grace, by the forgiveness of the cross. And I want to encourage you to pray a prayer of faith today. And then after we're done, we have a baptismal pool right out there. And you can be baptized today. When that water pours over you, it's a sign of God's love and grace and forgiving cleansing over your life, all free, freely given to you. Then we'll, we'll say a prayer of, uh, of a request. God, would you allow me the honor of letting go of the privilege that I have to benefit others? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this creed, the first creed of the first church found in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. Every word, every syllable inspired by your Holy Spirit is powerful. It tells the story of your heart for us, that Jesus being in the very nature of God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. He let go of his privilege for our benefit. He even gave himself on the cross, the most despised among all creation, the most despised, taking our sin, our failures, the suffering of this world upon himself, paying the penalty for it and dying for it, freely pouring out his privilege so that we might enjoy the privilege of knowing you, knowing your love, knowing what it is to be forgiven, knowing what it is to be loved unconditionally. We believe that, we receive that freely by faith, and I pray that many in here might be baptized this morning as a sign of your cleansing love over their lives. But God, we, we, not just want, we don't just want to believe in Jesus, we want to follow Jesus. Uh, your spirit is in us. The same spirit that was in Jesus is in us. And so God, help us to identify where we are privileged. Help us to humbly hold that, but then to follow Jesus in letting that go. That we might give a little bit of our time for the benefit of others. That we might give opportunity for someone that is less privileged that we might give a little bit of our resources to help people that are in need and advance your kingdom on this earth. God, that we might mentor somebody, come alongside somebody. Maybe we don't feel we have much to offer, but we absolutely do, raising up the next generation to follow Jesus well and to make a difference in this world. God, we believe in Jesus and we follow Jesus, the one who was humble, the one who did not take, but the one who gave for our benefit. In his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. 